You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 178. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. You've reached another Local Maximum. Today, we are finally going to talk about design, and we're going to talk about the overlaps and comparisons between design and engineering. And the book is called How Design Makes the World. My guest today is a best-selling author and speaker, but he came from the world of product management, team leadership, and design at Microsoft. He's the author of How Design Makes the World, Scott Birkin. Scott Birkin, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming by on this really nice Friday uh, Friday afternoon, Friday morning for you. Uh, I hope weather's really great out here in New Hampshire. I don't know how it is for, uh, for you out in the it's West Coast. spectacular here in Seattle. It's like 72 and sunny. It is uh, the glorious time for uh, the Pacific North- Northwest. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been, I've, I've got to tell you, like, I've been trying to do a, um, I talk about a lot of topics on this show. I talk about uh, machine learning a lot or uh, AI. I talk about blockchain a lot. I talk about all sorts of things. And the name of the show is called, called The Local Maximum because, uh, well, that's usually a term in, uh, in machine learning where it's like, well, you know, you've reached a point where it can't be improved. You kind of have to, you know, you kind of have to step back and, and make it worse before you make it better again. But when I think about it, like that is something that applies to design uh, equally as, as much. And I think I, even people talk about local maximums in, in design more often almost than a local maximum. So I've been interested in design my whole career, even though I don't do it for a living. It's just part of the, all of the apps we build as someone in the tech industry. And I was, uh, I've been wanting to do a show on it for a long time and I was happy to get your book. So thanks for writing about it and thanks for agreeing to come on. <laughs> hey, here we are, let's go. <laughs> yeah, all right. So I, I tell some people, a lot of people ask me like, what are you reading, Max? And I, I try to explain to them that it's a book about like, you know, what kind of design, like they ask me like, well, what kind of design? And I try to tell them, well, I think it's like about the commonality and lessons from all types of design, whether it's like urban design, software design, mechanical. Um, is that right? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's, um, that's really the spirit, of, um, the spirit of the book, but it's also a way to think more broadly about problem solving. That so design often has a reputation for being uh, superficial. You say, oh, I'm reading a book on design. They're probably thinking, oh, graphic design? Is this like interior right. design? Are you redecorating your apartment? Like, what? Yeah. You're like, no, 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 no. I mean, like design of things. They're like, oh, like watches? And no, no, no. So <laughs> design is often used as the noun, that it's a thing. And uh, that makes people think of it in a superficial way. I'm way more interested in design as a verb. That if you're using it as a verb, then it means it applies to almost any domain. Someone designed the chair that you're sitting in. Someone designed the someone designed the public transportation system you used to get to work. Someone designed the laws that determine how fast you can drive on the highway. That design is a verb. Um, that's the interesting thing to me. And of course, that pulls on ideas from graphic design and architecture and software design, of course. But the universal theme of the book is that everything's designed and we should all be thinking more clearly about what that means for what we want in the world, how we evaluate things we buy, and also for anyone who makes things, we should learn these fundamental lessons that other designers have learned because we can all apply them if design is truly universal. Great. So do you see like a, um, 
a, a sort of a, a boundary between design and engineering? Like, what, what is the difference between those two um, modes of creation? Or are they more or less the same thing, or is there overlap? I think, I think um, so I studied computer science in college <laughs> and I started, eventually so studied design. <laughs> yeah. Hey, all right. So eventually I studied design and I remember um, I studied design in terms of like interface design and user interface design. That was my first formal introduction to it. And I remember when I started reading about the processes that designers use and architects use, I was like, wait a second, even in my basic data structures class in computer science, we were talking about design. We were talking about the design of data structures and what the trade-offs were between, you know, different, different algorithms that you have all these properties. Anyone who makes anything is doing some kind of design. You are identifying a problem and then you are trying to use your skills and what resources you have to solve it. And that's an act of creation that I think is a kind of design. When an engineer sits down to say, I'm going to, I'm going to make a new API. They're thinking about the problem, they're thinking about who's gonna use it and they're gonna go and design it. So engineers use the word design all the time. And in fact, some definitions of engineers' jobs are defined by that word. That I, I'm, a, I'm a, a missile engineer. I design missiles that will you know, go and take down enemies' craft. Yeah. Like, so that verb again shows up. And I think the distinction, if you're an engineer, that usually means something about how the precision and the quality of the result, that you engineered it. It has to work. The bridge can't fall down. Uh, it has to meet code. It has to be you know, accessible. It has to be performant. And design usually means more about the, it's more loosely about the front. It's about the ideas more so. So designers, professional designers, usually more involved earlier in projects. And engineers are always guaranteed for sure to be involved all the way through, and especially at the end, when you're making sure the quality level of all these, that level of precision is there. Yeah, so you mentioned in the book that, you know, we're involved with design every day, no matter who you are. Um, but, you know, let, let's say you're starting on a design project and I realize I wanna get into some specific examples sure. later, but I wanna, I wanna see if we can figure out some generalities. Um, let's say you wanna, you know, focus on some kind of design project you're starting. What are some good questions to ask? when you're beginning that project? So the, the, book, the, the book is themed around four questions that are at the heart of why design goes wrong. <laughs> why, if any yeah. bad product you experience in the world, any frustrating service, they probably fail to answer one of these questions well. And um, the four questions are, are really simple. Uh, the first question is, what are you trying to improve? That seems obvious. Well, what's well, stupid? I'm, I'm trying to make a you know a better a better web a better mobile phone. I'm trying to make a right. better you know food delivery app. But that question means more than that. The question means you have to think really care. You have to think really carefully about what you're improving. As a builder or an engineer, it's easy to get lost in the fun of building, and you start yeah. working on a project with the intent to make taxes easier, let's say, tax accounting easier. And you start building and you get lost in the algorithms, you get lost in your schedule, you get lost in your budget, and you're excited about a certain problem. It's interesting, interesting to you as the builder. And little by little, you're forgetting that you're trying to improve something for somebody else. That's the first question. The second question is who are you trying to improve it for? So you may design a tool that's fantastic for you and you love to use it, but everybody's different. They have different needs, they have different requirements. They have different desires and tastes. So the fact that something works well for you has no bearing on whether it's actually gonna work for your intended customer or not. 
So who is it for? Then the third question is how do you ensure you're successful at improving a certain thing for a specific person? And that's where all the stuff that user experience work and user research and prototyping and usability tests and all the stuff that often comes up in software projects, those are all methods to help you ensure that you get the result. The problem is, as we know in the world, a lot of stuff that tries to use these methods, they fail and we still have bad stuff in the world. So number three, that question number three, a lot of the book talks about why we still fail. And then the last question is about the future. And it's about asking if, if you're building something, what are the possible unintended consequences of it? Who might be hurt by your work now or in the future? And the history of invention and innovation, we love to talk about the moments these things were invented, but I can tell you for sure that Benz and Ford and all the inventors of cars did not think about gridlock traffic. They did not think about gas emissions. They did not think about all the terrible things we now know about cars. Now you can't have foresight and see into the future, but a responsibility everyone has as a maker is to ask that question and say, how might a criminal use what I make? How might a corrupt government use what I make? Can I design it differently to help reduce those things? Those are the four questions. Yeah, yeah. Or, or is it is am I not looking out for the interest of the person using this? Maybe I don't know. A lot of sure. people work in ad tech, for example. I, you know, it's it's easy to find downsides for that. I'm not against ads. You know, I'm not against cars. We want we need all these things, but. Uh, Pretty, I'm against cars, but that's, that's oh, okay. Okay, well, <laughs> <laughs> we, we could get into that. That's really interesting. Um, but uh, where, like, um, um, I, I feel like it's hard to find anything you design that at least doesn't have some downside or some 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 kind of double-edged sword or some kind of other edge to the sword, even 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 if it's stuff that's worth building. Sure. But I think the, the goal of that question is to be a responsible creator. And we yeah. live in this, most creators, I mean, engineers, tech founders, uh, we, we live in this optimistic world that I'm trying to do good. I have these skills. I want to solve this problem. It's going to be great. But that denies the reality of the history of all people like us. All, all the unintended consequences of the past should tell us that when we're building, we should be aware that it's likely going to be the outcome of what we make as well. And part of our duty then to society is as we're building it to have that doubting Thomas in our mind. How could this be used for evil? How could this be used for purposes that are not my intent? And how can I design it to reduce those things? Uh, so, it's not, you're right. It's not, you can't, you can't completely protect yourself against that, but you can say my eyes are open and maybe there's a way I can design this a little bit differently or think about these consequences and be smarter about it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering, do you have like a go-to example on that? I mean, there are tons of ones, maybe with the cars or, or something else. Well, the a key one that a key one that ties to the design of our economy is planned obsolescence, and so it has a long history. But a key part of that history is GM in the 1930s. They realized that their new cars weren't selling as well because people's old cars were still good. So yeah. they basically invented a campaign to make a model, a new model every year based on styling. They basically created the consumer consumption that it was about showing status and not about the quality of the goods itself, but that you wanted to show off to your friends and have pride and that you have the latest thing. And so we look at that now and go, wow, no wonder that, no wonder we, our landfills are filled. No wonder that um, 
we have this society that throws away things that perfect that work perfectly well. Now we're paying the price hmm. as a society for all of that planned obsolescence. We look at that now and say, wait, we should build things that last. We want to have things that have value for our children. We want our next generation to inherit things that are good. And that is, works against the, some of these notions that have been built into how we think about design and products and, and society. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I want to ask a question about, um, about you know, asking who, who something is for. So there, I, there are a lot of times when you don't have a very good answer for that at the start of a project. Let's say it's some kind of a, a software API, right? Okay, I'm designing something and I'm hoping that, and I'm getting data to someone. Let's say it's Foursquare where, where I work, it's like location data. I'm hoping that other people are gonna build something that's really cool off it. But one of the fun things is I don't know what they're gonna build yet. Uh, and then there are tons of projects like this. Uh, so where, how do you answer that question? How do you make sure you're not building something that's worthless, but at the same time, how do you allow yourself to like, you know, build something where I know some, I, I kind of know someone is going to use it for purposes that I can't foresee. Sure. So this is about, to me, this is about invention. And when you're inventing something, there are many different, you, you have many, there are many different approaches you might take to that. Some people go about inventing things because they identify a problem. They're like, this thing sucks. <laughs> Why does it suck so much? I'm going to make a better way for us to get around town. You know, uh, like the segue, I think you may want to ask you about that. Uh, yeah. One of the classic examples of just bad design because they failed to ask the right questions. But um, if you're approaching it, that's one approach. You're talking right, about so segue. I mean, would you say Segway is, is an example of something that's like engineered well, but designed poorly? Or? Correct. Absolutely. Okay. And, and, and um, but to give you a better example about um, invention, um, one approach, as I'm suggesting, is people have a problem. They've already identified the thing and they're working backwards from the problem. You're talking about induction where mm. someone has an idea. I don't know what it's for, but it's cool. I want to try it out. I'm going to build this thing. I don't know who it's for yet. I'm not even sure what it's for. And the history of scientific research is largely about this. They're just discovering new stuff. They don't know what it's for yet. When they discovered the laser, they had no idea it'd be used for like yeah. CDs and DVDs or, or barcode. They had no idea. If you're doing invention, there are plenty of ways you can go to be, you, what, there are plenty of ways you can be more informed about the potential for it, but they all involve talking to people and going to people and say, hey, I got this thing. What, try it out. What do you think you can do? And you learn by actually not just talking to people, by watching them try to use the thing. And the classic example from the literature is the post-it note, the invention of the post-it note. They accidentally made weak glue. What they think, yeah. They made weak glue by accident. A lot of invention stories talk about accidents and say, oh, the accident happened and it was amazing. No, the true, both these stories all involve an accident and then someone decide to, do, to be curious about what it's good for. How can I use this accident? So the story, the, the post-it note, they invented this, weak glue by accident. And then it took them years. Art Fry was one of the inventors and he went around for years with this weak glue and tried it out with all different kinds of things. He had samples and prototypes he'd give to different people and say, hey, you're, you work in an office, like here's some stuff, see what maybe it's used for. So he did a lot of this kind of customer research with his invention that he didn't himself know what it was good for. And it took years of collecting data and learning more about its possible uses. Eventually he found one. And it was a musician who wanted to annotate his musical scores. He needed something simple he could apply to it. And that became their first real use case. 
So you have to experiment, but you have to do that with people, other people. Get out of your lab or out of your software development environment and go out and give it to people and observe and learn from what they do. It's always, a, always an, a, an available option is to learn and experiment. Gotcha, gotcha. So if, uh, right, so if you have an API, maybe hold a, a hackathon or something. Sure. I guess, sort of an idea, I don't know. More specific is go to a few engineers that you know are creative and that, that you know they had, they're, they're, they'll give you some time to say, hey, mm. play, play around with this. T take 20 minutes, see what you can get this thing to do. Yeah. Now you're inviting them in to participate and helping you design and make it better. They'll have ideas you would have never thought of. Cool, cool. So wh what do you think in terms of the, uh, let's talk about the segue for a second because that's, a, that's <laughs> a, a fun one. Well, what do you think they did wrong? What, do you think they could have built something and have it been successful for, for what it was? Or do you think, where, where do you think they went wrong? I think the fundamental mistake they made was skipping parts of those questions. So the first thing that they did was before they, they were not working with an open mind, like you're suggesting, they came in and they began the project with a technology that was already a product and the goal of how can we use this for something else? So this has limited their, their, their sensibilities to be very narrow. They weren't thinking about what problems should be solved, what people were trying to solve a problem for. They were thinking, we've built this thing, we have to reuse it. And that's just, that just hamstrings your creative ability. So they, were, they set about with the, the technology first. And um, that was their first mistake. The second mistake was they made a lot of assumptions about people. And they decided that their ambition was to, re, to, to um, revolutionize public pers personal transportation a device that everyone would have that could get them almost anywhere quickly and easily and safely. Great ambition, like a founder speech from like a startup founder. Great. The problem was they didn't go talk to anybody currently alive in the world and say, Hey, what are your personal transportation needs right now? Like, how do you solve them? What frustrates you about getting to the shop or getting to work? They didn't do, they didn't do it. They skipped it. And that means if they had done it, they would have learned something very simple and obvious to us now which is people use bicycles for this. Bicycles are cheap, they're affordable. Everyone knows how to use them. They're easy to get around. You don't have to plug them in. You don't need expensive batteries for them. Right. So they did, not, they did not avail themselves of what the alternatives were to the thing they were designing and try to learn from that. They, that would have probably forced them to realize the technology they were using might not be the best one for revolutionizing personal transportation, but they were already so preconditioned to assume that their technology had to be the right answer that it set them on the path that they ended up on. Right. Right. I, I wonder, you know, the, like segues are still used in some places. So it's like, I wonder if they had a different, um, if they just found a different problem to solve, then um, yeah. maybe it would have been Better. Yes. I don't. So this also gets back to hubris and invention and design that yeah. what you're saying is a far more reasonable approach to invention. Just like I suggested before, had they gone and made 10 of them and found 10 people they thought was re representative of the potential audience and gave them a, a segue for a month and studied them and observed what do they do with it? What don't they do? And then they built that. Like, oh, we've learned now. Let's refine it. Let's understand the reality. No, instead they had this grand this grand proclamation, which yeah. we're fond of doing as inventors. I'm going to revolutionize everything. And they presumed. It's like in 10 years, everyone's going to be flying around on my plane. And right. 
It's Brighton right. from work. Right. Or, uh, or um, you know, uh, uh, Quibi, uh, Quibbly was a, a good one last year. We're going to revolutionize how people consume media because why? Well, because we want to. <laughs> it's not, it's I, not well, a- I don't know that one. Quibbly? Yeah, it was a major uh, media. Um, they, were, they were trying to do short form videos and stuff. So you had a billion dollars of investment money to make a new social media kind of platform that never really had a clearly identified audience or problem to solve. Okay. So yeah. it's a similar story to Segway in that you it's had a bunch of high powered people who were all impressed with the ambition, who gave it a lot of hype, but they never really satisfied anyone along the way in developing the idea. So they were set up to fail by that lack of following those questions and being sincere about asking, what, what are we not seeing? What, what's a better way? Who is it? Who are we really designing for? Let's study them. Is this really the right approach? They skipped all those things. Yeah. Uh, so I, I want to ask, and um, again, uh, well, I, I want to circle back. Let's, let's wait till the end to circle back on like examples of great design because that would be a good thing to end on. But poor design is also fun. So let's uh, have a follow up on, on something because there's a lot of people who kind of accuse a product of being poorly designed. And, you know, there, there, there are certain failure modes. One that we just mentioned are answering those four questions. Sometimes those are not answered. Um, another one that I think you get into the book is sometimes the um, the economics and the the politics. And by the politics, I don't mean like the you know the 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 yeah I don't mean like the the, the political elections. I mean right. like the internal politics of the company or, or whoever whatever organization is designing this thing, uh, or or whether it's a city or whatever. I think a right. city is a good example. Like just kind of. What are some things that happen there? Like, where? What are some signs where you could tell, like, this was designed by uh, a committee that did not have um, a, a singular focus? Sure. So, uh, a lot of my career in the in the tech world, I was a project manager, so I led project teams. Yeah, and that's um, like pulling together all the. I mean, herding cats is the uh, right is the analogy. right, and so uh, I have a lot of personal experience with understanding why projects go wrong, and it's usually not the reasons that people who have creative talents or engineering talents think uh, we, we tend to, we want to label it on whenever we see something that's bad or have a bad experience or even software that's just low quality that crashes all the time, or it's hard, hard to, hard to work with. We want to blame that on incompetence. This engineer must've been an idiot. How could he have designed this API this way? Or so we tend to label it on, on, on skill. And that's really not the way that people work together, teams or organizations. Teams and organizations depend on each other to make decisions, to have shared goals, to communicate well, so that they're all working on the right thing at the right time. And all those things are really hard to do. That's the main reason why projects fail. It's not because the people aren't talented. I mean, that can be your problem. That's usually not the problem. It's the way that they're organized and directed and led, how much trust in their culture they have. Those are the real problems. And those are the real problems for the design of everything. So in the book, I talk about how a common example of this is like a website for an organization. It could be your university. It could be your corporation that you know when you go to that website, that it's just bad. Like it represents the, not the things most people need when they go there. And we wonder why, well, why is it divided up this way? Why are these the five main pages on this thing? And they must've been stupid. No, it's because the leaders of each of those departments in the company wanted their thing to be visible on the homepage. So they felt, well, my department's just as important as Sally's department. So shouldn't I have as big an icon on the main? That's really what it comes down to. Can these people get along? 
And so if the leaders of each group in an organization don't get along, then they're not going to get along in deciding what a good design is. And so one mm -hmm. of the examples in the book is the city of Missoula, Montana, which has the core of the city rotated. The city grid is rotated 45 degrees, the core right. downtown area from the rest of the city, which means there's five-way intersections and six-way intersections. And people look at that and go, what kind of stupid urban planner was this that did it? And the right. truth is there were two different landowners and they didn't agree. So the city got designed in a messed up way. And that's usually when you face a bad product or bad service, that's part of what's going on is the organization is just not healthy. It's not capable of doing quality work. Yeah, that, that example also reminded me of, um, you know, Manhattan in like the, the West Village, how the streets go in the opposite direction. Um, that's yep. very confusing to new people who move in. But <laughs> I don't know if it's that, like it doesn't, the neighborhood's very nice. It doesn't really make it that bad, but um, very tough to drive sometimes. But the, the transition though, like south, yeah. of, south of Houston, right? Uh, yeah. like, oh, that too. Yeah. Weird for people who don't live there. And that's, that, that that's, a, it's a kind of bad design. And that's why it, it's not yeah. because the person did it was stupid. It's that the people in power didn't get along. So we have those ripples. Yeah. So, uh, I, I found a, a tweet by you that I really liked. Um, it says, uh, and it actually looks like this is a tweet storm, so I'm not going to get into the full <laughs> length of tweets, but, uh, the fact I've never been good at doing tweet storm. Like I tweet every once in a while, but I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, I wish I could be better at being like, here's the full list of things. Anyway, uh, the fallacy of the seat, I'm going to start it. You're right. The fallacy of the seat at the table is often decisions are made before the table meets. Yes. I know this because much of my career was controlling tables. Uh, the more people at any table, the more real action goes elsewhere. Now that's, I mean, that, that comes out in design. You're talking about something more broad than, than, than just design or organizational, but, um, what, how, how, do, how does that happen to tell me like, what, how do you see, um, what are some good questions to ask for someone who finds themselves, uh, in an organization observing this stuff going on? The, the, the basic idea is that we, especially if you're trained as an engineer or designer or technical, you say something technical, you have a, we have a very, we're, you're trained to, and you probably have it already, a very rational view of behavior. That's why people become programmers. They like the rationality of the machine. You, if you can figure out the right thing to say, it will do exactly what you want. And that's right. amazing, but that's yeah. not the way people work. <laughs> people are emotional. Yeah. Uh, we're irrational. Um, there's good, there's good things about that and bad things, but we are not, we don't work that way. And so people look at the way decisions are made in organizations and we want it to be rational, we want it to be logical. That's it's just not the way it is. So the seat at the table thing is simple. When you get into a room to meet people, when you get, we have a meeting, you're trying to decide something. It's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of subtext to what's going on. Who's getting along with who, who had an idea that they've already run by a few people. So when they bring it up, People are nodding their heads already because they've already heard it. Um, having a seat at the table means you're privy to what's going on. There's a whole social network of interactions that's really driving what's happening. And if you're not paying attention to that, you're going to be confused and baffled by the results. And so in simple terms, and this is logical in a way, if me and you are having a, having a, a, a meeting to decide where we're going to get dinner, uh, there's just two of us here. I'm not, picked, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have to worry about anyone else's opinion other Go than back yours. and forth. Yeah. Right. But if there's a third person 
Now, anything I say to you, I'm saying in front of them. So I'm going to maybe say things a little bit differently. Like I might argue with you or debate with you in a different way. Now there's a fourth person. Now there's a fifth person. Now there's a person who reports to me. Now there's a person who's my boss. All these add layers to what people will say and won't say or how they'll say it that has these compounding effects on what goes on. And that means the bigger the meeting you're in, the more the intimate real debates probably go to places you don't see, to mm -hmm. private chats, to, uh, to hallway informal conversations. And that's really where a lot of the influencing and decision-making is happening. So that's what that thread was about. And this to me is germane to design as a verb. So it's not just about you know, user experience design. If you're working on the machine learning team and you're gonna decide which samples to use, it's a, it's an important discussion, right? right. Uh, if you're in the meeting and there's 12 people there, I'm telling you, there've already been discussions about this. They've, some yeah. people have already been talking about it because it's so important to them. They want an inside track on understanding how it's gonna go and an inside track of getting what they think is the best answer to be the right one. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think that's true, and um, also it's it's sort of like th there's the process of gathering feedback and gathering information. Now, when you're designing something, I think it's it's as you say, good to talk to as many people as possible. But when you're kind of internally, like I often want to be as open as possible and get as many people, many inputs as possible. But at some point, it gets overwhelming, and right. you have to whittle it down to like a smaller group to say, "Okay, this is what we're going to do." And sometimes people feel like they are, they, uh, you know, it's kind of inevitable that people sometimes feel like they haven't been consulted, and that's, that gets the whole thing of like not being able to please everyone. And yeah, you know, yep, that's true. So. And this, that's. That is a mathematical reality about the nature of decisions and relationships. And that's part of what makes managing a leading team so complicated is uh, yeah. balancing those things. Yeah. So uh, we talked about some, uh, some failure mode for design, but I want to ask you, and, um, and I want to end strong, like, what are some things that you found where you're like, wow, this is really well designed, or this really replaced something that um, was really bad with something that is... That, that works really well. Um, yeah. And, and how could you tell when things are going right? Yeah. Uh, well, the, the, the ironic thing about good design is that when it's done well, you don't think about it. And that's part of the challenge of this book and why I wrote it and the challenge that people who are good designers face and good engineers face this to a degree too, that when you make something work really, really well, it just becomes invisible. Yeah. Uh, people only notice what you do when it fails. You know, if you're, if you're like a cyber liability engineer, right? You have to yeah. keep the website up. You're doing your job and people don't even think you have a job until it crashes. They're like, what? Why is it down? And you're like, you have no idea how much you are. So I think yeah. um, this is a universal truth. It's true for design too. When something's really intuitive and works really well, you're not thinking that someone had to think about it. It just seems so, so natural. So I, I have two examples from my life uh, for this question. One is a funny one, which is I live in the Northwest. Um, I have a bunch of wood in my yard. Uh, splitting wood is a very therapeutic, stress relieving thing to do. So I have an ax I bought during the pandemic. It's a Fisker's ax. And I love it from this example because it fits so well in my hands. It's so not, it's, it's heavy, but it's balanced in a way that just feels really natural. It makes you feel really powerful when you use it because when you swing it, it's, it's built to amplify your strengths. You feel like kind of superhuman. It never crashes, has infinite battery life. 
uh, will probably <laughs> last me for like a decade. You know, it's this great product. It's this, it solves my problem and it doesn't create any new ones at all. And a lot of products we buy initially solve a problem, but they start to create new ones and battery life and those kinds of like things are this consequence we've come to accept about technology, but it really is, we create problems by the things, some of these technological things. My other example, yeah. which is more practical, is there's a, a tool called Calendly, which is this calendar, online calendar tool. And I switched to using it over during the pandemic and it is so good. And I say it's so good because think of any time you have an, e you, 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 you want to have someone on your podcast and you email right. them, like, can you do this day? And they email back, what about this day? You, yeah, you no, I've used it. I've used right. it for people like getting on someone else's calendars. Yeah, right? yeah, which is this thing that like it seems so trivial, but yet you do it all the time, especially with strangers because they don't have access to your calendar. And yeah. so, and for someone like me, who's an author and a speaker, I do I meet a lot of people online and have to meet with really. So, so the tool just it, it has anticipated all the cases for this, all the corner cases. And I can set it up so my schedule is available for certain people in this way, for other people in that way. And every time I've learned the tool, I'm like, oh, I really need to do this option. It's already in there. I've been so satisfied with the functionality and also the simplicity of it that it is by far the best modern recent example of a technological piece of software that uh, has been that high for me. It's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I definitely, I mean, I use it myself sometimes, but I have... Um, it's way better to get on other people's calendars versus trying to email back and forth with like authors like yourself or CEOs or whatever. Yeah. I'm going to take up like five emails with them trying right. to come up with a time. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's like, it just seems so uh, dumb now. It yeah. Seems yeah. So dumb. Like, here's a link. Here's what I'm available. You click a button. It'll do it automatically and send you a link to it. It's like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the book is called how design makes the world with Scott Birkin, uh, and uh, I, I would encourage anyone who is like really compelled by the, uh, the, the examples we're talking about today and, and, and wants more, definitely get a copy of this book. Um, Scott, before we go, do you have any uh, last thoughts about our discussion today and where else can people find more about you and uh, uh, more about I'm e easy to find. My website's my name, scottberkin.com. You can get free chapters from the book there. There's a, a short, fun video we made about bad design examples about the book. And uh, yeah, I know I'm Twitter yeah. at uh, my last name, B Birkin, B-R-K-U-N. Yeah. I love how the book is itself designed. And I think you talked about this. Like it's, I, you know, sometimes I read through books mostly for the podcast now and it's like, um, sometimes it's like, oh my God, I have a 30 page chapter <laughs> and I just really love this one because the chapters all have like a main point and they're all like five pages and I can, you know, sit down and read it sometimes between, between like tasks and, uh, each one gives me something to think about. So I really appreciate that. Thanks. So, all right, Scott Birkin, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks. Bye. All right. I particularly encourage you to pay attention in your projects to those questions about, uh, you know, who might be harmed by what you're building. What are some of the potential unintended consequences? Uh, you know, what if what you're building is being used by a malicious actor? Um, I just highly encourage people to ask that question. I know I gave Scott some pushback, but it's really important um, just because we need to to you know, figure out what the boundary of that question is. You know, not everyone is going to agree, but I think if everyone asked that question, we'd live in a better world. And if, if 
people at a company or on a team are asking that question, it's a good sign. And if not, I just think it means that their designers and engineers are kind of jaded and overworked. And it's, it's not a good sign in the long run. Um, if you're in the mood to go through my archive, the local Maximum Archive, I'd point you to episode 12, in which I talked to former Foursquare product manager Marissa Chaco about the difference between building products that look out for users and building products that, that don't. Uh, but beyond that, the book, uh, which I have here, has a lot of really great examples. Uh, for example, in the USB-C cables that you have, you can uh, plug it in. Actually, this is a USB-C cable right here. Uh, you can uh, plug it in in both directions. I could have plugged it in this way, this way. But for the old ones, you, know, you couldn't do that. Why didn't they just design that that way to begin with? Why is that? Learn about it in here. There's also like one chapter from a guy who designed the master plan for an airport. So some great stuff in this book, How Design Makes the World. The show notes page are at localmaxradio.com slash 178. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at maximum.locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.